Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today, we're continuing our multi-episode Climate Hit Home series on how changing climate conditions are impacting communities in the United States. This episode's topic is on the urban heat island effect and how to reduce heightened temperatures in urban areas, a long-time consideration for cities, but of increasing importance in the face of even hotter temperatures. I'm very pleased to be speaking about this topic with Lisa Larock, who is Sustainability Officer at the city of Las Cruces in New Mexico. As you can imagine, Las Cruces is no stranger to dealing with heat, but as temperatures are predicted to rise even further in the face of a warmer climate, strategies to reduce those urban temperatures become even more important. Stay with us as we discuss. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining me today on Resources Radio and for continuing our Climate Hits Home series with us. Thanks for including me. I've been an avid listener, and it's a great series. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, we always like to start with a get-to-know-you question for our guests, so I'd welcome you to sort of say a little bit more about your background, but before I do that, I'd like to ask you what I've been told is a very typical opening question among folks from New Mexico, and that is red or green? (laughs) I'm partial to green, but sometimes I go Christmas, and we're talking about red and green chili, Uh, our... our, uh, most popular food source. A lot of people can't live without it. And um, that's actually our state question. We also have, are the first state in the nation to have an official state aroma. And not surprisingly, it's roasting green chilies. So it's a very, very important question and smell. Is it a polarizing topic? Do people fall distinctly into red or green camps? No. No, not at all. It it depends on the food choice. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, now now that we know that you're potentially Christmas, that you have uh, likes for both, what about your, your professional background? Well, I've been working in the city for 10 years in sustainability and have done other projects before that in working in equity issues and environmental issues. So this all kind of melds together. It's been amazing to watch the progress that's happened in the last 10 years, and I'm hopeful for what is in store for us in the future. Hmm, Great, great. All right, well, let's dive into our conversation on what is often called the urban heat island effect. Um, I think it's fairly widely known that urban areas often run several degrees hotter than the suburban or exurban or rural areas that are around them. And so just for a little bit of context, can you talk us briefly through why that is? Sure. So urban heat occurs when cities replace natural land cover with dense concentrations of pavement, concrete, buildings that absorb and retain heat. And um, our urban designs have compounded the effects in about three different ways. When you remove trees, grasses, and other natural waterways, they could have a cooling effect on the environment for free. And you lose the shade and impacting on cooling other surfaces and the evapotranspiration when plants give off moisture. And together, these two natural services can reduce temperatures by 25 degrees or more. 
The other problem is that when you have these urban designs that create a dense collection of heat retaining surfaces, they bake the environment day and night. And these surfaces are impervious, meaning that water can't pass through them. So heat is absorbed and slowly radiates out. And all of the mechanical devices like heaters, air conditioning, condensers, vehicles are all putting out waste heat. And I haven't even touched on dark colors of asphalt and tar-papered roofs or on the huge swaths of parking surfaces. But the last problem is that all this infrastructure lasts a really long time. Think about buildings that are easily around for 50 years or more and roads that often get expanded. So all of these make the urban environments get hotter and hotter. And then they sprawl and become more urban. It's a really big problem to fix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it sounds from the kind of, from the reasons you just shared with us, it, it sounds like urban heat islands are not explicitly caused by climate change, but they certainly, I'm guessing, would be exacerbated by it, right? So there's more heat coming into these cities, and it's just kind of continuing trends that happen based on the built environment that you described. Is that a fair assessment? Or anything more you'd want to add about that relationship between a hotter climate and hotter cities? I think it is a fair assessment. And in fact, just from listening to this this series, it really highlights how local environmental challenges like flooding or drought or urban heat become challenges on steroids when climate change is added to the mix and the problem is magnified. So 25 years ago, we could count on one to three days of extreme temperatures over 105. By mid-century, now we're expecting a month, and by the end of the century, we're expecting three months. And so it's, it's not a momentary discomfort. It's, those are impacts that, um, th that uh, influence the amount of energy we use and the costs, our water supply, the length of our agricultural seasons, air pollution, heat-related illnesses and mortality as consequences of this heat. And mitigating urban heat can help our city adapt to climate change. So even though they're a local problem, they can have a big impact on global issues. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is reminding me a little bit, I'm, I'm thinking back to the previous episode that I recorded for this Climate Hits Home series, um, where I had a chance to speak with a contact in Phoenix about water availability and drought. And one of the things that she noted that I found very interesting was that Phoenix is actually kind of ahead of the game in knowing how to manage water scarcity, because it's just a fact of life in the desert. And I guess I'm wondering if you would say the same thing about heat in a place like Las Cruces, which is you know, hot in general, and even as that heat increases, do you feel like you kind of have a leg up in um, in addressing this urban heat island challenge? You know, that's a really interesting question, and I thought a lot about it. And I wish the answer was yes, but I don't think it is in this case of heat. And the difference is, whereas the importance of water in a desert environment is very context-specific, I mean, you have to have the water, building 
in an urban environment has always been more strongly related to national trends. And so the areas where we are experiencing urban heat are a product of old urban design principles, of old building codes, a lack of appreciation of nature's services. So communities built over 50 years ago or more didn't pay attention to um, the same things. They had a different mindset about energy efficiency design, mobility, parking lots, shopping experiences, walkability, and green space. And we didn't experience the environment when we were in a car or an air-conditioned house. But today, we are used to this chronic but variable amount of heat. And now that these zigzag graphs that we're used to, that say it's hotter, hotter, have tilted up towards even higher temperatures, it's hard to see it as something different. And I don't think we have internalized what it will mean to have one to three months of significantly higher temperatures, especially in terms of energy costs, pollution, and health. And and I think that's a problem globally, is that we're not ready for the fact that it's already here. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so I want to ask you about another thing that I know Las Cruces has done, and, and this, I think, speaks to a point you just made, too, about kind of looking at, at hotspots and where the heat is, in fact, most prevalent. And my understanding is that you've undertaken some pretty interesting mapping exercises, looking at where that heat is kind of most severe in the in the urban core. So can you tell us just a little bit about that research, maybe how it started, how you did the mapping, and, and what you found? Sure. So I've teamed up with university climate centers and the national agencies like NASA, the National Aeronautic and Space Administration, and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And uh, we worked with NOAA on on, um, this particular study that you're talking about. But in general, these studies have been invaluable at providing the data we need to justify practices that help us become more resilient, that that actually highlight that hot is not just the same hot. And in this latest study that we did with NOAA, we had nine teams concurrently traveling around predetermined routes in Las Cruces to collect the ambient temperatures at 6 in the morning to 7, 3 to 4 p.m., and then 7 to 8, to see how temperatures varied around the city at different times of day. And the low-income neighborhoods in the center of the city consistently experienced higher temperatures than the affluent neighborhoods. To put this in context, when it was 3 p.m., frontline communities experienced 112 degrees Fahrenheit, where those affluent neighbors experienced 103. So the areas I'm describing represent about 25% of our population. So this is really a serious issue. Mm-hmm. And, and what are some of the factors that, that lead to those differences? Is there, is it, to whatever extent it's available in Cruces, is it tree cover? Is it differences in surfaces? What's showing up more in those um, lower income areas that's perhaps not showing up or vice versa in those more affluent areas? 
I think it's all of the above. There's less trees. There are a lot more impervious surfaces. People don't have enough parking spaces, so they will actually uh, park on their front of their property, more of the property, and put concrete or asphalt on that. Um, and I think that the houses are less well insulated, and so they radiate off more heat. So those it's a combination of factors. Right. Okay. Uh, well, this might be a good segue to transition from talking about the problems, which you've done a great job of laying out, but actually thinking about solutions. And we started kind of referencing a few things um, around, you know, shade, around reducing impervious surfaces. So, yeah, let me turn to you and ask about solutions that Las Cruces has been employing. Um, and and one thing in particular I'd like to ask about um, here in a place like Washington, we talk a lot about the role of parks and green space. And so I'm wondering how that plays out in a desert environment like you would have there. Um, I'd love to hear more about this kind of residential versus commercial buildings. Are there different strategies there? And then maybe if you could talk a little bit too about how your strategies are actually evolving um, as you think about those temperatures, as you said, you know, rising even further and happening much more frequently. So it was a lot of questions roll into one, but let's, let's hear about solutions. All right, I'll try. Um, so there are some universal practices that we have or are putting in place in landscaping, but we still have a long way to go. We only have 4% tree canopy. And for you out in the East are probably shocked to hear that. I guess that's in part what defines a desert. But we can have more trees, and we're following Albuquerque's lead to treat trees as a public good, where the city would provide trees to residents and other uh, landowners, and nonprofits could help with green infrastructure, which means harvesting stormwater or finding ways to collect water uh, to be able to uh, irrigate those those trees. And of course, they're native trees that don't require a lot. And then landowners would be responsible for taking care of them. We've started using, um, we've also started using pervious pavement on some of our trails and cool reflective green sealant on our bike lanes to reduce surface temperatures. For those folks who want to go out and walk or ride a bike, we're trying to help them out. We've also are making some headway on our building sector with mandatory new construction codes that require buildings to be electric ready with higher insulation and upgraded electric panels. And we also have volunteer stretch codes that move you to high efficient all electric buildings that are deliberately aligned with the Inflation Reduction Act rebates and tax credits for a real carrot for people to do things. And although this doesn't sound like heat mitigation, the more we stop using fossil fuels and shift to efficient, well-insulated systems, the more resilient we will be during extreme heat events. And now I have a special guest joining me, the producer of Resources Radio and editor of the award-winning resources magazine, Elizabeth Wasson. Welcome. Thanks. It's nice to be here at the mic with you. I see you brought something. Is that the latest issue of the magazine? Sure is. Hot off the presses. We've got articles in here about the Energy Insights Conference that RFF co-hosted, the Net Zero Economy Summit celebrating RFF's 70th anniversary last year, and a whole lot more. And how can listeners get their hands on that magazine? 
If listeners make a gift to RFF in any amount, they'll receive a print subscription to resources for the next year, including this May issue. That's three issues of the magazine delivered right to your doorstep. Just visit rff.org slash donate and make your contribution today. I can hardly wait to dig into those pages. But for now, let's get back to the show. Lisa, this is all super interesting. And I, I want to circle back now to something that you mentioned a little bit in an earlier response, but um, and that's about disadvantaged communities. And, and you know, as we've talked about in pretty much every one of these uh, series episodes, as with most, if not all, of climate-related impacts, um, the burdens of heat, as you noted, are often felt most heavily in disadvantaged communities. It sounds like that is the case in Las Cruces when it comes to these urban heat island effects. So I guess I wanted to kind of probe a little bit further and ask if there are specific measures, specific solutions that you're implementing that really try to ensure this more equitable response to those high temperatures. Anything come to mind? Oh, absolutely. This is something near and dear to my heart. We are working on a special program to deal with retrofitting the older homes that I described in the beginning of this segment. And those are particularly an issue for our frontline communities that own or rent these houses. And sadly, we've uncovered many systemic inequities that we want to address. And I know this is the positive part of your segment, and I, I will promise to to highlight some, some good outcomes from this. But I, just to let you know a little bit more, the places that people live that we're talking about would not meet today's building codes. And we don't really give that a lot of thought that, yeah, they're in older houses, but those standards were much more lax. And and let alone, you know, compared to the new standards that we're proposing. And there's that inadequate insulation, there's single pane windows, there's HVAC systems that are near the end of their life cycle. And houses with these characteristics are the only homes low-income folks can afford. And with this comes a long list of deferred maintenance and high utility bills due to the inefficient systems. So they're carrying all of these problems on their shoulders from the neglect that happened from previous owners. And a large part of the low-income residents are considered house burden, which means that they pay over 30% of their income on mortgage or rent with utilities making up a big portion of those costs. And 50% of our frontline communities rely on what are called evaporative coolers, which are wet filters that you pass air through, and that lowers the temperature. I know in a human environment you think I'm crazy, but that's that's what we do. And But the problem is that with urban heat being continuously bringing in hotter temperatures and then coupled with the extreme heat, events that we have, all happening during the summer, which is a rainy season, this low-tech solution is no longer working. It will only decrease temperatures by like about 10 degrees, so that means houses are still in the 90s. And this circles back to the whole idea that you have to have a well-insulated house in order to keep it cool, because the temperatures outside can come in and heat it up. And those residents with air conditioning 
and high utilities often don't use their HVAC systems to avoid shutoff fines, and that puts them at a health risk. So we've gone from like, oh, it's a hot day, to, oh my gosh, these people are in a constant health risk because it's very draining to your body to try to have to be cool all the time if you don't have those systems. So now for the good news. Um, Thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act and other state and local programs, we're focusing our attention on a scalable retrofit program that will reduce energy burdens. We're going to replace the system, HVAC systems, with high-efficiency heat pumps that heat and cool. We're upgrading electric panels, and we're developing a new workforce opportunities for those that are most impacted. And if bills are not low enough, we also have a new community solar program that has a special rate for low income so we can reduce their utility bills by 30% more. And so these improvements not only are uh, good for equity socially, but they also put in equity monetarily in the house. Plus we train a new workforce. So the best thing is that this program is being co-created by the community. So we're getting a real insight as to what the challenges are that they face in terms of the programs that currently exist and how they're not meeting their needs and what they'd like to do it. So it's been a a really rewarding process to go through and develop this program. Yeah, that's really interesting. And one thing I'm hearing too is that I think it's probably fair to say that it's rare where you actually have the resources and the opportunity to address kind of so many factors that contribute to this all at once where you can, you know, replace heat pumps and have funds left over to improve insulation and also kind of tackle multiple causes at the same time. And so, um, yeah, it just sounds like a, a promising moment to look systemically at some of these challenges. I am feeling so grateful that all of these opportunities have come before us. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is a godsend for for us in being able to address this. And we have a university that works in a lot of energy uh, efficiency areas and they, and solar, and so they can help. So we're really collaborating with a lot of different groups like the Weatherization programs can help with the insulation. The uh, Inflation Reduction Act can help with the heat pumps. The community colleges can help with the workforce. So it is it is a group effort, and I see the potential will be significant if we can get it scaled up in time for the money to be available to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And that that kind of brings me to my last substantive question that I want to ask you, which, as usual, is actually more like four questions in one, but I'll try to, I'll try to be concise. Um, and that is, in fact, about kind of connections with other jurisdictions, because something that I think we've talked a lot about in this series is that um, in many ways, you know, each of the kind of place-based realities that we're talking about you know, these places have unique infrastructure and climate and population composition. So dealing with some of these resilience um, considerations really needs to take these local conditions into account. But uh, that being said, there are 
you know, there's support from other jurisdictions, whether that's through learning or through dollars, that can really be useful. So it, it is a partnership between this very local learning and potentially kind of gathering the best of the resources from around you. Um, you mentioned the IRA, you've mentioned a number of other kind of programs available to you. So I guess I wanted to ask one other specific question, which is about FEMA, and whether FEMA in particular, uh, my understanding is they're potentially moving towards funding for resilience investments as well. So not just recovery after bad things happen, but actually kind of preparing in advance. Um, and then you also mentioned Albuquerque. And I just wanted to kind of understand maybe what you've been able to learn from other jurisdictions around you that you've incorporated into your work there in Las Cruces. You are right. That is a multiple question. <laughs> that that's That's fine. I'll see what I can do. So first of all, the federal and state agencies are really stepping up uh, to the sustainable and equitable practices, especially those that are outlined in Justice 40 that accompanies all the grant giving in the federal jurisdiction. And so I think everybody is is listening to the to the call to action and really wanting to help and support each other. So there's lots of ways that we can get help. And, and I think that we're all committed to the action. So I see things really uh, blossoming. And groups like FEMA are a great example because initially it was, they were more of a reactive group. And you can understand why, because there are lots of emergencies. But there's now looking at upstream solutions like you said, about how communities can be more resilient. And I appreciate that. And and I think it's it's a new relationship because they are poised to do it, but haven't been involved with people who think like that. So bringing the sustainable community to FEMA, I think will be an interesting way to reframe how we approach things for long-term benefits. Now, Towards your questions about is it applicable to everyone, I think that one of the things that we all benefit from is hearing the challenges that everyone is facing and the strategies that people are using no matter where they are, because you can compare and contrast them to your own situation or figure out how you want to morph them. And so no matter whether I'm talking about Albuquerque or someone in Arizona or even in Norfolk, I, you know, hear lessons all along um, from these folks. And, and I've tried to distill them to like three lessons uh, to to be more succinct. One of them is that these issues that we see locally and globally, I feel are caused by us not living within the ecological systems that the earth has in place. So think material cycles and the laws of energy or thermodynamics as guiding principles. I mean, when we're emitting too much greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, you see the consequence. So like, how do we keep those cycles the way that the earth intended them? Or how do we look at energy so we can be as efficient as possible by not having it convert to 10 forms before it gets to you? And those are all 
lessons that we need to learn, humility we need to feel in order to move forward on, on how we're solving problems. And then the second thing is uh, if you have um, had local issues that you haven't addressed with these ecological services, you should get going. And there is a good chance that things are going to get worse. And I have seen so many patterns change of more extreme events that people say, oh, it never rained this early, or the winds never blew this hard, or boy, the amount of fire uh, tinder underneath is is growing. I mean, those are all red flags that we need to pay attention to. And um, not it, there's no benefit of an I told you so moment. And the third thing, and this is really what's coming home to me as I work on this project with retrofitting and co-creating with the community, is that as you unpack things, you will find inequities. And this is a real chance for us to do things, to learn from these and then to do things better, to to really right the wrongs that we have done and question the fairness of of having certain populations shoulder things in a much harder way. And I think it's going to be worse. Not, I want to be positive again. I think there's opportunities to do things better. Well, Lisa, I really appreciate the time you've taken to sort of share a vision of what Las Cruces is doing uh, in this in this area. Um, I'm sure it is a place where you will talk about heat many more times, but I really appreciate your taking the chance to talk about it with me today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So let me ask you um, our standard closing question, top of the stack, and I would welcome any recommendations you might have for our listeners. Um, can be content of any type uh, that you might want to suggest that folks engage with. So what's on the top of your stack? Well, um, I'm very pragmatic, so I wanted to give a shout out to my friend, Lad Keith, out of the University of Arizona. He and Sarah Miro have written this book called Planning for Urban Heat Resilience. They did that in 2022, and it is a great resource. It provides a rich background, there's a planning framework, and a catalog of just comprehensive approaches to heat mitigation and management for folks in a host of agencies and sectors. And it really looks at urban heat resiliency for the long term. And boy, if you you know want a fresh idea or to be reminded of a good old one, it's in that book. Mm, that's great. All right. Well, we'll definitely put a link to that on the website uh, so folks can check it out. Thank you again, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this series. It's great. And of your course. home program. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate.
RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.